Thanks, Rob. Hi, everyone. Ah, bit late, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I've actually just come back from a few weeks' holidays, and you, I hope, have been reading the book of Ezra while I've been away. Is that what you've been doing while I've been away? Good, good. I see a few nods. Uh, you've been reading the book of Ezra. So, hopefully, you can tell me all about Ezra. Hopefully, you have read all about this great man, Ezra. In the first chapters of the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6, hopefully you've read all about this amazing man of God, Ezra, and and what he did for the Lord and how the Lord used him to do amazing things. So I want to hear from you. What do you know about this man, this amazing man called Ezra? Who wants to go first? Who wants to put up their hand and say, oh, look, here's a verse in these first six chapters of the book of Ezra that talks about who Ezra is and what he was like and what he did. Don't put your hand up because I've given you an impossible task. The the book of Ezra, for the first six chapters, there is no one called Ezra. You may have realized that as we started, as you guys read it over the last few weeks, and as Phil preached through it, but no, instead, so far in chapters 1 to 6, we've seen that the the exiles of Israel returned to the land under a man called Zerubbabel instead. He's a descendant of King David. So, so far, there's been no Ezra. Where is he? Well, he's in the passages that we're looking at tonight. So far, we've seen just kind of the prequel or the opening scenes. We haven't met the main character yet. But tonight, we get to. But let's remember first, what's happened in the first six chapters of uh, the book of Ezra? Remember, Israel had been judged by God. They were defeated by the Babylonians and carted off into exile in Babylon. But soon enough, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. They were the next superpower that came in. And the king of the Persians, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, God put in his heart to send the Israelites back home, to let them return to the land. And so they went, many of them, under Zerubbabel, as we've seen. They went, and though they encountered opposition, eventually, by the end of chapter 6, they've rebuilt the temple. And so things are looking good. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. Just We're going to skip all over uh, some parts of Ezra tonight. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. They worshipped God rightly. They celebrated the Passover festival, and they celebrated with great joy because God had caused the king of Persia to see to support them in the building of the temple. God's promises, if you remember, are being fulfilled. His word prevails. He promised Abraham, I will bless your descendants, and so he's doing it. He promised the Israelites in exile, I will bring you back, I will plant you in the land, you will rebuild the temple. And they've done it. God has done it. His promises are yet again being fulfilled. His word prevails. But now, we meet the man Ezra for the first time. And we have his story in chapters 7 to 10. And uh, we're going to be looking at those chapters together, kind of doing a helicopter ride throughout chapters 7 to 10 and dipping down at various points. We're not just looking at chapter 9, which we read out before. So have your Bibles open, start at Ezra chapter chapter 7, and you'll see on your outline we're dividing it into two halves. So let's get into the story, uh, chapters 7 and 8. The first thing we learn when we look at the beginning of chapter 7 is that it's now the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. 
chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it's now the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, which is about 57 years after the end of chapter 6. That's a decent amount of time, isn't it? And it's 80 years since the exiles first came back under Zerubbabel. So that's a decent gap of time. Now it's about the year five, sorry, 458 BC. And we're quickly introduced to this notable man, Ezra. He's a priest and a scribe. Growing up, I always thought Ezra was a, a woman's name, probably because it sounds like Esther, but no, it turns out Ezra is a man, and he's a remarkable man. So look down at verses 1 to 5. It shows us there he can trace his heritage all the way back to, look at the end of verse 5, back to Aaron, the very first priest, Moses' brother, which means he's legit. He's an authentic Levite, a genuine priest, someone who has the authority to teach God's word, the role of doing that. And we see this is exactly what Ezra wants to do. He's a faithful man. Look at verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra is shaping up to be a faithful guy. He wants to study, obey, and teach God's word, and he's equipped for this task because if you look at verse 11 and 12, he's an expert in God's law. He's a scribe. He knows the Old Testament through and through, well, as far as it had been written. But Ezra, he's still off in Babylon. He's not in Jerusalem with the other exiles. He's far, far away. But it seems he's friends with the king. And so the king writes him this letter. Look at uh, you see it from verse 11 onwards, I think. Uh, take the time to read it yourself later. What does the king say to Ezra in his letter? He says, Ezra, I give you permission to take as many Israelites who want to go and go take them all back to the land of Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. Because as we heard in previous weeks, not all the Israelites came back under Zerubbabel. Some stayed behind. Now a second lot come through. And the king, he gives Ezra this job, a special job. Look at verse 14. Ezra knows God's law so well that the king gives him this job of seeing if Judah and Jerusalem are up to scratch. He says, Ezra, I want you to see if they are living by God's law or not. See how the temple is going. Is it still running after these 50-ish years? Are people paying their 10% to the temple year after year? Are people keeping the Sabbath week after week? And the king gives Ezra everything, everything he needs to accomplish this mission. He gives Ezra authority in verse 25 and 26. He gives Ezra an abundance of silver and gold and wine and oil and salt and wheat, whatever they need. And he waives their taxes which dictators never do, right? What does all this show us? It shows us that straight away, beginning of the story, God is in control. And he is gracious. He causes the king to show kindness to Ezra and to the Israelites. He, he blesses them abundantly, provides for them. And he blesses Ezra's journey. So much so that in chapter 7, verse 27, Ezra speaks up. We hear his voice giving glory to God. Look at verse 27, his response. He says, Praise Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put it in the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord, 
the temple in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. There's great anticipation in his voice, isn't there? He's excited to go back to the promised land, and he sees all of this as God's hand at work, sovereignly looking over all things. And so he gives God the praise he deserves. Well, what happens next? We get a big list. If you look over chapter 8, you'll see there's a big list of people who went back to Jerusalem with with Ezra. And if you kind of add up the the people and kind of do a bit of guesswork, it seems that there was about 5,000 people. So this is no small operation that Ezra is heading up. This is why Ezra is nervous in the rest of chapter 8. He's trying to transport a massive crowd of men, women and children, of animals and supplies on a four-month journey. It's dangerous. But Ezra sees God's grace at work in their journey. You read about their journey? Let's look at chapter 8. We'll just dip into a few verses. Verse 21. Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our children, and all our possessions. Verse 23. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he granted our request. Verse 31. We were strengthened by our God, and he protected us from the power of the enemy and from ambush along the way. And so they arrive in Jerusalem safe and sound. And so rightly, they offer sacrifices and thanks and praise to God for his protection. So far, we see Ezra, this faithful man, going on a faithful journey. He depends on God. He does what is right. And God blesses his journey. He is gracious. Things seem to be going really well. But then we get chapter 9. Chapter 9, which we read out before, Ezra gets to Jerusalem and things don't turn out so well. Let's think about the second half of Ezra's story, chapter 9 and 10. Because Ezra has to make some bold changes. Why? Because he hears a confronting report. So have a look. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1. Let's spend a bit of time here. After these things have been done, the leaders approached me, Ezra, and said, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, the other nations. What have they done? Verse 2, Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. And it turns out, the leaders and the officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. So what's happened? Israelite men who have come back from Babylon and come back to Jerusalem, back from the exile, they've settled in the land, they've got their, you know, their house and their, their business in order, but they've done more than that. They've seen the women who were there in the land already, who've taken the land in their absence, and they've said, they look like marriage material to me. And so they decide to marry the women of the land, the other nations, who were there already. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why does it matter whom they marry? Well, it's because of the words that I didn't read out before in those same verses. Look at verse 1 again. These people have detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, who were the other nations who were in the land before Israel were there way back hundreds of years ago. 
And these nations, the Canaanites and the other nations, they worshipped other gods. They reveled in sexual immorality. They, offered, they even sometimes sacrificed children to their gods. And the leaders of Israel tell Ezra that the Israelite men are marrying women of these nations. This is a big deal because verse 2, the holy seed, he says, they say, the holy seed, that is God's people, have become mixed with the surrounding peoples. And this is not right. God wants his people to be holy, to be different, to be distinct, not like the other nations. And so it's not right for God's people to mix with the nations who ignore God and worship other gods who are not gods at all. And then we get Ezra's response. How will he respond to that news? I think his response is astounding. Again, we see he's a faithful faithful man. Look at verse 3. It's confronting again. Ezra says, When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. At the end of verse 4, I sat down devastated until the evening offering. We'll look down at chapter 10, verse 1. Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God. And even verse 6, he does not eat or drink all night because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. When was the last time you or I responded to sin in that way? The sin of the world, the sin that we see in ourselves. Ezra is absolutely distraught over this news, over the Israelites intermarrying with the other nations. We're tempted to think, Ezra, you're being a bit dramatic. Aren't you being a bit over the top? Calm down, Ezra. But Ezra, he's an expert in the law. And so he knows passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7. Have a look on your screens. God said to Israel, when you enter the promised land and there are other nations there, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Ezra knows these words. So Ezra is rightly fearful. Because after everything that God's people have been through, after God had exiled them for their sin, and now he had graciously brought them back to the land and blessed them again, after all of that, Ezra doesn't want them to fall back under the judgment of God. He doesn't want God's people to be led astray to worship other gods by their wives who worship other gods. So what does Ezra do? He does what a faithful man should do. He does what God's people should always do in response to sin. He prays. We heard it read out before. And it's a model prayer, a prayer worth reading again later and worth imitating. What do we see there? What does Ezra pray? Have a look at chapter 9 again with me. From verse 7. He confesses the sin of his people in the past. He doesn't skate over things or make excuses. He tells it how it is. They were sinful. They, they offended the God who had been so kind to them. Verse 8 and 9, he says, 
But now you have shown us grace, you've let us come home. And then verse 10, he says, how can we then take your grace for granted? How can we turn away from you and sin against you after you have been so kind and gracious to us? Did you notice he doesn't pray for anything? He doesn't ask for anything. He just says, this is what we are like. We are guilty before you, our holy God. We would do well to follow his example in our prayers, wouldn't we? Why not use his prayer to shape your prayers this week? But as we move into chapter 10, something else amazing happens. Picture the scene. As Ezra prays and mourns and weeps, hour after hour before the temple, what happens? A crowd begins to gather. What is this man doing? What is wrong with him? What is he saying? Little by little, the crowd gathers, and they watch in and listen, and they hear what this broken man Ezra is saying. And they realize what's going on, what he's crying out to God about, and they are cut to the heart. They know Ezra is right. They realize they have sinned greatly. And so what do they do? Well, again, it's quite confronting. They admit they are in the wrong, and then they do what they need to do to right the wrong. They say, look at chapter 10, verse 2. They say, we've been unfaithful in this. Let's make a covenant, a commitment to right this wrong and send away our foreign wives and even some children. And they swear an oath to this. And then later on, verse 7, all the men of Judah, they gather together and they make it official. It's decided. And so then in verse 16 onwards, they actually do it. Over the course of the next few months, each man married to a foreign woman is investigated one by one. And they are dealt with. At the end of chapter 10, there's a list. 113 men are found to be guilty of this sin. And they send their wives away. And if you look at right at the end, verse 44, sadly, even some children had been born and were sent away as well. Now I hope, I hope from the bottom of my heart that these men would have been deeply remorseful about this towards God and towards their wives. I hope that they would have done this regrettedly, that they would have been sorry that they even made the poor decision in the first place of marrying them. I hope they would have had sent their wives back to their families well-supplied, generously providing for them. We don't know what they did in the end, but that's my hope. But it's confronting, isn't it? Ezra's story, it seemed to start with so much hope, so much promise. He was this faithful man, and and he went on a journey, blessed by God, and then it just ends in this. And so we need to bring it all together. We need to think about the story of Ezra, We need to think about the question that we're all thinking, right? Was this the right thing to do? Was it right for Ezra to rock up in Jerusalem with the other leaders and then call these men to send away their wives, to send away their children? I've heard some people say, no, it was wrong for Ezra to do this. Sure, it was the wrong decision for the men to have decided to marry them in the first place, But once they had married them, they should have stuck with them. 
What a horrible thing to send away wives and even children. Ezra should not have done this, they say. But others, and I think this is the intention of the book of Ezra, say that yes, it was the right thing for Ezra and the Israelites to do. That in this particular circumstance, at this particular time, sending away these foreign wives was in fact the right thing to do. Awful that it had to happen? Yes. Painful? Yes. Would God hold these men to account for how it affected these women and their children? I think so. But it was still all right, still faithful, still the best decision of a bunch of bad decisions or hard decisions, bad options. So why? Why would Ezra be right in doing this? Because Ezra understands that God's people were called to be his special possession. They were called to worship him alone and they were called to be holy and pure. And this sin, this intermarrying with the nations, it put all of that in jeopardy. Especially in this pivotal part of their history. You see, these wives, they were not simply innocent bystanders. Yes, they were an affected party, but they weren't simply neutral. They were idolaters. In those days, it was assumed that when you married someone, you took on their gods and worshipped them for yourselves. And so these, these women weren't passive. They were actively leading God's people away to worship their gods who were not gods at all. Yes, there are times when God has graciously poured out his mercy and, on the Gentiles and he's brought people like Ruth and Rahab into his kingdom. But Ruth and Rahab came to worship Yahweh, not lead Israelites astray to worship other gods. The doors of God's kingdom were open to those who truly wanted to worship Yahweh, not those who worshipped idols. This is all the more important given what God's people have just experienced, the exile. Israel had just been exiled for sins like this very sin. The sin of disobeying God, marrying with the other nations, worshipping idols, turning away from their God. So they were punished. And now they've been shown grace. God has given them another chance. So they need to survive. Most of all, they need to survive because the bloodline of the Messiah comes from them. God promised that someone from the line of David, someone from the remnant of Israel, would be born. Our Lord Jesus. So it was do or die for Israel. Israel had already been judged for their sin. They didn't want it to happen again. God had been gracious and they didn't want to take that for granted. Look at Ezra's prayer again, chapter 9, verse 14. Should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us? leaving no survivors. God is holy. And God's word prevails, and that includes his word of judgment. And so his word needs to be taken seriously. As we've already seen, he's already shown Israel that he is holy and jealous, and they can't take his amazing grace to them for granted and expect to go scot-free. 
And so that's the story of faithful Ezra and the difficult decisions, the difficult situation that he had to face. Next up, we begin the story of Nehemiah, and we see some more interesting stories of another faithful man. But let's stop and think about us for a moment. How should we respond to the story of Ezra, and particularly what he does here at the end? In particular, maybe you're thinking, do we imitate what Ezra does here? Should a Christian send away their non-believing spouse? I think you'll be glad to hear that the answer is no. The apostles Paul and Peter make it abundantly clear that if you find yourself in the difficult situation of being married to someone who is not a believer, not a Christian, then you are not to leave. You are to live faithfully with them, aiming to love them and win them over by your Christ-like example to faith, aiming to raise your kids to love and serve Jesus. Stay with them. Both Paul and Peter say it unambiguously. We don't have time for it now, but you can read 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 this week, and it's very clear what they say about that. A Christian should remain faithful to their spouse for life, whether they believe or not. But I think, and it's abundantly clear in this passage, that both the New Testament combined with the Old Testament, passages like Ezra 9 and 10, and many others, these passages make it abundantly clear that a believer should never choose to marry an unbeliever. That a believer should always choose to marry an unbeliever, if they have the choice. And so if we find ourselves unmarried, you might find yourself unmarried now, you might be married now and find yourself unmarried in the near future or the distant future. If we find ourselves unmarried and we decide to look for a husband or wife, we must look for a husband or wife who knows and loves Jesus, who strives to live for him, who is seeking to grow in faith and godliness, someone who's going to encourage us to keep following Jesus, not lead us astray to worship other gods, the God of self or the God of materialism or career or any other God, whether secular or religious. And the track record of God's people in the Bible should be warning enough for us. So many were led astray to worship idols by their spouses who didn't share their faith. So don't put yourself in that dangerous place. What did Jesus say? He said, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world? A spouse is included in that, yet forfeit his soul. But, there is one more thing to say about the story of Ezra and his reforms, his changes that he made. Yes, let's say it was the right thing for Ezra to do, to call for repentance, to put things right. But the sad thing is that it didn't work for very long. Because in just a few years' time, Nehemiah comes along and deals with the exact same problem. We'll see it in a few weeks' time. Israel turned back to the sin of marrying people who rejected God and worshipped idols. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Isn't that the saddest thing, one of the saddest things you've ever thought or heard of or read in the Bible? Well, it's because Israel's hearts were essentially unchanged. Ezra did his best to teach God's law and to help Israel to obey and live for him, 
but at best, he could only bring about short-term change. Because Israel's hearts were sinful. Because our hearts are sinful, and we always go back to chasing the things that we want, rather than what God wants. So Ezra shows us that in one sense, the, Ezra, the exile didn't work. Yes, it showed them that God is holy and that sin is serious, but it didn't change Israel's heart. And so the story of Ezra points us back to the promises of God and forward to the time when he will fulfill them. It shows us that they were still waiting for God to keep his promises, waiting for his word to prevail. What word? What promise? The promise that God would work in them to renew them from the inside out. Look at these wonderful words from Ezekiel 36. God says this to Israel in exile. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How will he do that? I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. God promises that he will one day change their hearts so that they can truly obey him. How does he fulfill this promise? How does he take sinful people and make them into saints? How does he take people who always chase after sin and instead chase after righteousness? It's through our Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's the risen Christ who pours out God's Spirit into his people, both Jew and Gentile, so that they are made new. Through Christ, God pours his Spirit into us, causes us to desire and to live out his purposes. Do you know the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8? He says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. By His Spirit, God has taken our heart of stone that is cold to Him, that doesn't listen to Him, and replaced it with a heart of flesh, with a heart that accepts the gospel of grace, a heart that fears God and wants to keep His commands. That doesn't mean we don't sin this side of Jesus' return. We are not perfect. We still battle temptation, but God, by His Spirit, truly does shape and change us, work in us to desire and to live His way. He forgives us. He changes us. He makes us more and more unlike Christ. And so we can and do please God with the help of His Spirit in us. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. We have the fulfillment of what Ezra longed for, what the Israelites look forward to. And that's what we can learn from the story of Ezra, isn't it? What can we learn? Well, yes, we should take God's word seriously. In particular, not choosing to marry someone who's not a believer. Yes, we should take the holiness of God and his people seriously. God's people are meant to be distinct from the world in the world, but not of the world, a light in our world. Loving believers, yes, but not being unequally yoked with them. But the biggest thing to take away is that God's word always prevails. 
that he fulfills his promises, that he is gracious. God has fulfilled his promise. He has sent his spirit. He has given us his spirit, a new heart, so that we might live for him. And that means we should be thankful. And it means that we can obey God and live for him from a thankful heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for the story of Ezra, for the warning that it gives to us today, for the faithfulness that it encourages, for the sin that it helps us to avoid. But Father, we know that the people of Ezra, Ezra's day, and us today, we can't do anything about our sin except for the cross of Christ. And so we thank you that you brought about that great descendant of David, the Lord Jesus, and that you poured out your wrath on him as he died on that cross so that we might not face your wrath. Father, we thank you that you have given us the promise of your spirit, that you have given us him as a gift, that you have changed our hearts to be hearts that want to and do live out your will, your commands. We know we will never perfectly obey your word until our Lord Jesus returns. But we pray that you would, by your spirit, convict us of the truth of your word and strengthen us to obey it. And please, Lord, help each one of us to honor you and obey you in whatever circumstances of life that you have given us. Help us to make wise and godly choices for your honor and glory. And we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus and because of the grace that you have shown us through him. Amen.